0: hey guys before we get into today's episode i just want to let you know that our store is officially up and running again and we have done a major rework to the website to include links for that and to our donation page on patreon so if you're looking to support us but don't know how now you can and we're going to begin work on our ad page on the website so, if you own a business and are looking to support a great cause and get some benefits, let us know at www.welcometooregon.net. Thank you all so much for your support, and now, on with the show. Hello, friend! Man, that was a close one last week, wasn't it? Good thing that bear was more interested in our camp food than podcast equipment, eh? Well, are you ready for the next story? This one I found extremely interesting, because some of us take our existence in the universe for granted, but others are very aware of what we could find the farther we dig into the mysteries of the vast expanses of space. Let's begin. When I say the word aliens, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? probably roswell right or maybe even something in pop culture like x-files or the aliens franchise i suppose if you're really close-minded you think of our brother and sisters south of the border but today i want to talk about reasons why aliens would visit us versus why they wouldn't aliens are probably one of the most talked about mysteries in the history of modern humans In fact, the very first documented details of what we would call aliens goes back to the atomist speculations popular among Epicurean philosophers in ancient Greece and their Roman disciples. Democritus and Epicurus considered the universe to be the result of a chance jostling of atoms and noted that it was very likely that there were other worlds out there and that they were inhabited. Epicurus's disciple... Metrodorus of Caius, considered the idea of our world being the only one as unlikely as, quote, if a single ear of wheat grew on a vast plain. As the Roman Epicurean poet Lucretius put it, quote, "...nothing in the universe is unique and alone, and therefore in other regions there must be other earths inhabited by different tribes of men and breeds of beasts." Now, granted, this is also coming from a time where their definition of atoms and the truth of what our modern science has discovered differs greatly, but humans have always been intelligent, and it would be foolish to think that we are alone among the stars. Even the concept of divine beings still stem from that age-old belief that there are beings that exist beyond our borders and are greater and older than we are and the ideology is met headlong with excitement about what potential life beyond the stars could help us achieve, but also the utter fear of what it could mean for our survival. We are wildly accepting of the idea that there's a strong chance that if we were to be visited by aliens, that they would outright destroy us, and honestly, I think that's more of a projection of our own ignorant and intolerant nature as human beings. After all, to come back to the little jab earlier about the treatment of illegal aliens, if that's how we treat our own species, imagine how we would treat an entirely different race of beings. One thing is for certain, whether we like it or not, we are likely not alone in the universe. I'm Marcus Axford, and welcome to Oregon. I'm not necessarily a space nerd. However, something happened recently that I think is really cool to highlight. As of September 2023, NASA's James Webb Space Telescope may have discovered real evidence that there might be life on another faraway planet. A molecule called dimethyl sulfide, or DMS, was discovered on a planet 120 light-years away, named K2-18b. Not a very sexy name, I know. But the molecule is extremely important because, as it's known to science, it can only be produced through organic means, a.k.a. life. More specifically, DMS is a component of the smell produced from cooking certain vegetables, notably maize, cabbage, beetroot, and seafoods, and is also an indication of bacterial contamination in malt production and brewing. If there is any intelligent life on the planet, it sounds like they eat right and know how to party. Some other exciting features of this planet that have also been detected are methane and CO2, which could mean the planet has a water ocean. To some, this isn't the most exciting news that we could possibly get. Hollywood has admittedly warped people's expectations of alien life, and those people often look for the glamour of things like alien abductions and probings. Folklore has also done a similar thing as it often does. We are always looking for an explanation to life's greatest mysteries, and honestly, there is no other target for explanation that I have heard than alien life, from the construction of the pyramids to the Midwest being besieged by crop circles and missing livestock. The thing we have to ask ourselves is, what if they're right? If you happen to have paid attention to certain news outlets at all in the last year or two, or even the past five years, you might have noticed that there has been an increased uptick in talk of extraterrestrial life on an official government level. Some of this has been attributed to the pandemic, when light pollution was lower and more of the night sky could be seen. Now, I live in small towns, so I can walk out my back door and easily see the night sky and understand what I'm looking at. But to those living in dense cities, it might not be as much of a common sight. Meaning that more people might report things that they've never seen before, but could have always been there. It sounds crazy, until you're with someone who isn't used to seeing a lightless sky, and gazes at the vast ocean of stars. However, apart from NASA's findings of minor life on other worlds, government bodies have been starting to make official inquiries into the possibility of life beyond the stars. Remember how Area 51 was officially confirmed to be real back in 2013, or that it was raided by random people in 2019? Oddly enough, that isn't the weirdest news to have come out of the Pentagon, which released three Navy videos in 2020 showing naval aviators witnessing objects hurtling through the sky, one rotating against the wind, and the pilots are heard expressing confusion and awe, confirming what people speculated for years. Of course, experts caution that even though the videos are indeed real, it still doesn't mean there's no earthly explanation for it, or that it's even aliens at all. They are indeed correct. As much as we want to believe that aliens are for a fact real, and we have been visited and observed all these years, the moment you start giving into fantasy without facts, you're doomed for failure. You might be wondering why even bring this up at all if we aren't certain and it's because I think it's important to know where we are sitting in terms of extraterrestrial education before diving into Oregon's own UFO sightings and oddities. After all, we are a lot further on in what we know now versus what we knew over 50 years ago at the height of Roswell. By the way, if you aren't familiar with the incident at Roswell, New Mexico... The basics of it are that in 1947, the military created something called Project Mogul, which was a top-secret project in which thousands of balloons were launched on June 4th, carrying devices to listen for Soviet atomic tests. What followed was a rash of, quote, UFO sightings, although they were still tied to the secrets of the military and not yet synonymous with aliens. Later that June, a rancher discovered debris in his field, and later heard of the saucer craze that was going around. He took the debris to the military, who confirmed that it was one of their weather balloons, and soon the whole thing blew over. But the fervor still remained deep in the hearts of the American people. The military had to be hiding something at Area 51. Of course, there have been UFO sightings long before the Roswell incident. From east coast to west and all over the world, multiple accounts have told stories of unexplained phenomenon in the sky, but I think it's time we finally focused in on the UFOs that have been right in our own backyard. According to research sources, Oregon ranks 6th in the United States for UFO sightings, with roughly 79 sightings per 100,000 people. Looking at a UFO sightings map, Claims are of course mostly focused around major cities, with scattered sightings in more rural areas. There's plenty of speculations as to why this is. It could be because there simply is nothing but trees or desert in those areas. Or you could even go with my earlier theory that because normally people in cities aren't accustomed to seeing a lightless sky. Or it could simply be there are anomalies that aren't extraterrestrial in origin that we as the average person don't know or understand. After all, that's usually how folklore works. I can't deny that I myself have seen odd things in the sky at night. For example, one time I was driving down a road that runs parallel with Highway 99 when I spotted something really odd in the skies above Salem to the east. So odd that it made me pull over to have a look. From what I can remember, there was something in the sky, a light, that was acting really bizarre. It might have even been three separate lights, but I do remember the one, how it bobbed and weaved, up and down, side to side. It was all over the place, although it could have honestly been anything. It could have even been a drone, although I don't know of any drone with a light that bright. I'm not here to say I'm a believer or that my experience was legit. On the contrary, I prefer to remain skeptical. I enjoy chasing down the truth rather than believe it at face value. If my experience had been during the day, then I feel that would have given it much more weight. And that's the crux of things, isn't it? Most people experience these things at night. The major incidents, like the legendary story of the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, usually take place when no one is around and the dark can play tricks on you. And yes, I'm well aware that there was much more to that story than a simple UFO sighting and if you don't know it, I highly recommend researching it. Now yes, there are absolutely stories of sightings during the day, but those usually turn out to be explained later on, and sometimes they don't. Real or not, I do have some stories to share with you, and some of them are out of this world. Shortly before dawn on September 24th, 1949, a police officer by the name of Robert Dickerson saw a large, bright object descend over the city of Redmond, stop abruptly, and hover 200 feet in the air. According to Dickerson, the object was low enough that it made the tops of the trees glow. And with that, he made his way to the Federal Aviation Administration Office at the Redmond Airport. From there, the report bounced from office to office, first to the Seattle Air Route Control Center in Washington, then to the Hamilton Air Force Base in California at 5.10 a.m., which proceeded to scramble six F-102 jets to intercept the craft, although why they didn't just send jets from nearby McCord Air Base, I have no idea. Unfortunately, that's where the story ends. I can't find the results of the military findings, if they even found anything at all, Although it is worth noting that an administrator with the Redmond Airport also witnessed the event, and filed an official report with the FAA. In the cold early morning hours of March 17, 1981, another officer, Sergeant Russell Yokum of the St. Helens Police Department, reported his own encounter. At 4.03 a.m., Yokum spotted what he described as a bright light moving in an easterly direction towards the Portland Airport upriver. While seeing lights in the sky wasn't unusual, this one was. It was brighter than any light Joachim had experienced, describing it as if the sun were just coming up. Determined to figure out what the light was, and convinced it was not an aircraft, Joachim proceeded to the county courthouse to view the light from the banks of the Columbia River. He was then joined by a few local citizens and two Oregon State Police officers, Ricky Cade and Tom McCartney. At that point, Yoakam got in contact with one Donald Askins via CB radio. You see, Askins lived in a home across the river in Ridgefield, Washington, and went by the handle Lucky 13. He could not only see the light, but hear it too. Askins reported an eerie and extremely loud noise that sounded like, quote, a power plant diesel motor and a screeching noise in between. The officers were confused, so they set up a portable tape recorder, 18 inches, from their police radio to record their conversation with Askins, and to catch the sound if it happened again. Askins offered to dangle his CB microphone out the window so he could transmit the sound, and the police drove to a nearby bluff that gave them a better view. The officers and Askins conversed for a while, talking about how it was like the sun was coming up, but how it was way too early for the sun to even be casting any sort of light in the sky. At approximately 4.29 a.m., the light emitted the eerie sound again, which was captured and analyzed by sound experts who couldn't figure it out either. You can find videos of the sound on YouTube, under St. Helens Police Officers Record UFO. I listened to the video myself, and while the sound doesn't strike me personally as very unique, it's still eerie to listen to officers talk about it. Eventually, a thick fog rolled in, and at 4.43 a.m., the object made an odd whistling sound and blinked out, described as if it were lifting straight into the sky. Thirty seconds later, the fog cleared, revealing sunny blue skies. It would be the most odd thing Yoakam and the others would ever experience. We will probably never know the truth to that story. Sadly, in an interview with Chief Terry Moss on October 11, 2017, six years to the day, ironically enough, Moss revealed that Yoakam has since passed away, his words forever lost to history. And unfortunately, I couldn't find an obituary for him. There are other stories from around Oregon, such as crop circles outside of Hubbard in 1998, or cattle mutilations in Vancouver in 1991. Yes, I know it's not part of Oregon officially, but neither was Askins. And yet these stories are just as important. Another story actually gave birth to one of the largest UFO festivals in the entire country. On May 11, 1950, two farmers named Evelyn and Paul Trent spotted a large disc-shaped object floating in the sky at around 7.30 p.m. A quick thinker, Paul ran back into the house, grabbed a camera, and snapped a photo of it. Despite the fact that the story tells us the photographs were taken above McMinnville, The Trents actually lived nine miles outside of the city, closer to Sheridan. For decades after, the pictures have been the object of scrutiny, and rightfully so, as several pieces of evidence were presented to contradict the legitimacy of the photographs, mostly lighting and the supposed time of day, but also that a theory was put forth that because there were wires in the shot, the disc could have easily been a model hung to look like a UFO, Of course, we will never really know. Evelyn died in 1997, and her husband Paul followed her a year later. Regardless of the clear evidence of a hoax, McMinnville still boasts the largest UFO festival in the Pacific Northwest, and the second largest in the nation, next to Roswell. Even though this is possibly the most well-known story of Oregon UFOs, there is still one more story to be told. And through my research, I've discovered some details associated with it that will blow your mind. Let the conspiracies begin. It was a productive June afternoon for experienced pilot Kenneth Arnold, who took off from Chahalas, Washington in his single-engine Call air A-2 light airplane to attend an air show in Pendleton. An experienced pilot with 4,000 hours of flying time logged and a member of an Idaho search and rescue unit, he decided to take a detour to attempt to locate a U.S. Marine Corps, Curtis C-46 Commando Transport, that had crashed with 32 U.S. Marines on board somewhere near his eastward course. And Arnold hoped to find the downed aircraft and claim a $5,000 reward. As a side note, the wreckage of that plane was found in July, shortly after Arnold's attempt to find it. A ranger spotted the wreckage, and four weeks later, the bodies were found high up on the face of a glacier. Sadly, they were never recovered due to harsh conditions, and remain there to this day, entombed in ice. To this day, it remains the greatest tragedy in the mountain's history. Shortly before 3 p.m., circling 20 miles west of Mount Rainier, Arnold saw a bright flash of light to the northeast. Figuring it was military, out looking for the crash, he initially ignored it, until more flashes lit his vision. He claimed they emanated from nine shiny objects flying in an echelon formation about five miles long. Arnold described each object as circular, about 100 feet across and with no discernible tail. The objects periodically flipped, banked, and weaved side to side. Quote, like the tail of a Chinese kite. The formation was crossing in front of Arnold, and he decided to time its passage from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams. He calculated the objects were flying at about 1,200 miles per hour, although some accounts say 1,700 miles per hour, two times faster than any airplane known at the time. Although he denied the use of the word saucer to describe the objects he saw, the word still stuck and it's from here we get the term flying saucer, much to Arnold's dismay. He was right. He wasn't the one to initially use saucer as a description. He told his story to reporters Bill Bequette and Nolan Skiff of the East Oregonian newspaper the day after his sighting. Skiff was the one who used the word saucer-like aircraft when he published a short print article that same day. After suggesting to Arnold that a wire story might generate comments from the military on flights of experimental aircraft that could explain Arnold's sighting, Bequet published a brief story picked up by the Associated Press Wire Service using the words nine bright saucer-like objects to describe what Arnold said he saw. By afternoon, the tale that he had seen flying saucers had spread nationwide, and the rest, as they say, is history. You're probably wondering about those wild details I mentioned before this story. In my research, I have come across something incredibly interesting. You see, 1947 was a very busy year for aviation history. You might remember that the Roswell incident happened from June to July in 1947, and that year shows up several more times, but not before one event in particular seemingly kickstarted the entire thing. By the way, as a side note, if you listen to our episode on the Spruce Goose, you'll know that 1947 is the same year that the government challenged Howard Hughes, leading him to conduct the one and only maiden flight of the beastly vessel. Like I said, a busy year for aviation. March 12, 1947 officially saw the start of the Cold War, and subsequently the paranoia of the American people as fears of the Red Scare began. Not long after that, the Roswell incident happened, and after that, the doors flew open. Keep in mind, because of the Cold War, the American people weren't initially thinking aliens in association with UFOs, as I said before. Soviet Union spies were on everyone's mind. But it didn't take long to add aliens and even our own classified projects to the list. What followed were stories like how three crew members of Flight 105 saw unidentified objects above the Pacific Northwest. A spacecraft was supposedly discovered outside of Roswell, and even a story of a B-25 departing McCord airfield bound for Hamilton Field that crashes near Kelso, Washington, killing both pilot and co-pilot. It was subsequently revealed that the plane was returning from investigating a UFO sighting at Maury Island. Seaman Harold Dahl claims to have seen six UFOs near Maury Island on the Puget Sound on June 21st and reports the first modern so-called Men in Black encounter. There is one story that is also associated with the beginning of the saucer craze of 1947. The story of one man traveling to an air show in Pendleton unaware he was going to be one of the faces of UFOs forever. That's right, Kenneth Arnold took flight on June 24th, 1947. I mentioned earlier how I love chasing the truth, and that's why the story of Kenneth Arnold excited me so much. Whether I am the first to voice the coinciding dates with Roswell and its Project Mogul publicly, I have no idea. At the very least, I am very likely not the first one to even conceive the idea. But it's amazing to slowly piece together all the events of 1947 and their connection to the Cold War. Abduction is usually a large part of these stories, as I mentioned before with Betty and Barney Hill, Electronics fail, time goes missing, memories are wiped or fuzzy, but for some reason, none of those things show up in the stories of Oregon, which is very odd because, let's face it, we as humans get scared easily and come up with all kinds of fantastical stories to explain our fears, whether it's Bigfoot, aliens, or ghosts. But that is a story for... next week. That's... weird. Huh. An hour has passed. Did I fall asleep on you? You don't remember anything either, huh? What was I going to end with? Oh well. You'll find out next week. The good news is, if there are aliens, I doubt they want anything to do with us. Well, my friend, the hour is late. And there are more stories to be told. Until next time, stay safe, my... friend. (laughs) This episode of Welcome to Oregon was researched, written, and narrated by me, Marcus Axford. Additional staff includes Jessica Axford, Leah Palmer-Rye, and John Palmer-Rye. If you like our show, you should check out our website. It's the central hub for all that we do here, including a feed for the podcast, a link to our Threadless store and Patreon donation page, and various articles on camps, state parks, restaurants, and more. We aren't Yelp, we just want to help people on their own adventures around the state. We also have our Oregon Resource Directory, which has a growing list of our associates like Finn John from Offbeat Oregon and Zach Ernest from the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast, basically a place where you can get more information on Oregon and connect with cool people. If you're looking for businesses or looking to advertise, we are working on an ad page for the website. Let us know if you're looking to invest. We also have our social media links on our contact section for further interaction. Check us out at www.welcometooregon.net and on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com welcometooregon. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I love writing it. And until next time, thanks for listening.